Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Hey, I want to personally invite you to our first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's a conference at the Outcomes Rocket and the IU Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Sciences has teamed up on. We're going to put together silo-crushing practices just like we do here on the podcast, except it's going to be live. With inspiring keynotes and panelists to set the tone, we're conducting a meeting where you could be part of drafting the blueprint for the future of healthcare. That's right. You could be a founding member of this group of talented industry and practitioner leaders. Join me and 200 other inspiring health leaders for the first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's an event that you're not going to want to miss. And since there's only 200 tickets available, you're going to want to act soon. So how do you learn more? Just go to outcomesrocket.health/conference. For more details on how to attend, that's outcomesrocket.health conference, and you'll be able to get all the info that you need on this amazing healthcare thinkathon. That's outcomesrocket.health conference. Thank you so much for tuning back into the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. I have a wonderful guest for you today. His name is Dr. Samir Budlani. He's the Chief Health Information Officer and Vice President at Sutter Health in Sacramento, California. Dr. Budlani comes to us with a lot of experience in medical information as a Chief Medical Information Officer previously at Intermountain Healthcare. Then prior to that, the Chief Medical Information Officer at University of Chicago, preceded by a wealth of experience as a physician and also just a biomedical informatics expert. So I really want to extend a warm welcome to Samir and also just open up the microphone to you, Samir, to fill in any of the gaps in the intro that I missed. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Saul. Uh, really excited to be part of the conversation and all the nice things you said about me. Thank you for that. I guess the only other thing I would add is that I used to practice and teach practice medicine and teach clinical medicine at the University of Chicago. I was the faculty in School of Medicine, had the wonderful opportunity to teach medical students and internal medicine residents, and that's definitely one thing I miss in my current career. So you had a great, great opportunity to be at the front lines and and train future physicians, and uh, now in a leadership role at Sutter. I always like to go back to the very beginning, Samir. What got you into the medical field to begin with? Well, true story. At the age of four years, my mother brainwashed me and said, you had to become a doctor. So here (laughs) I am. (laughs) Nothing uh, earth shattering about anything significant. It was just parental, good old parental pressure. I love it. And hey, you know, you listened and uh, good thing you listened because things are are going pretty well. Yeah, I've enjoyed, you know, all jokes apart. You know, that's how it probably started. But as I progressed through my high school, it was something that, you know, I found myself really looking forward to the opportunity of joining a medical school. And when it all happened, I realized, you know, this is exactly the career I wanted. And in many ways, even though I don't actively practice anymore, except on friends and family, what I do allows me to benefit patients and clinicians at a much larger scale than I would have been able to if I was just seeing a panel of patients. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm still a doctor. I use different skill sets to help uh, deliver better healthcare. Definitely on a broader scale. And, and in today's day with technology being so pivotal to the things that we do, your skill set is definitely very, very uniquely poised for some 
broad impact. In that field, uh, Samir, what do you think a hot topic that needs to be on our listeners' agenda today, and how are you guys approaching it? Sure. I think the hottest topic these days is generally under the broad purview of transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. The way I like to break it down is most people end up getting embroiled in a provider payer payment setup. That's how they see these two opportunities. As far as I'm concerned, the way I like to look at it, and a lot of my colleagues do as well, is that healthcare costs a lot more in comparison to the value we provide and the value and outcomes. I would change that to uh, value plus outcomes. And the reason we say that is that, you know, if healthcare was costing what it costs today in the United States, and then everybody in the United States or a significant population was A, satisfied with their healthcare experience and outcome, and we were the healthiest country in the world, then I would say, you know, money well spent, keep on going. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. While we are number one in, I think, I may not be far off on these statistics, but number one in the percentage of our gross domestic product we spend on healthcare and the actual dollars we spend on healthcare. And then when you compare from any WHO or other metrics used out there to compare the health of different countries, we're probably somewhere in the low 20s, high 20s or low 30s. That's where we were last time I checked. So we're clearly not getting money's worth. Uh, You wouldn't go to a car dealership and say, I'm willing to pay for the highest price car and I'm okay that it's the 30th in quality. So think of it that way. And uh, for me, that's a very hot topic in every medical leader's agenda is how to do more with less, how to do better than we have done in the past, and how to engage our clinical workforce and our patients uh, differently in this digital age. I think that's such a great analogy, Samir. Nobody would want to pay triple for a car and, and, you know, it be 30th on the list of great cars. Can you dive into some examples of things that you've seen or or things that you guys are doing over at Sutter to bridge the gap? Sure. I think I'll speak. One example is on the quality side. There are a lot of quality metrics that an organization like Sutter and any of our peers, large or small or different, ambulatory inpatient and so on, use to measure their clinical outcome. While the current quality metrics are not ideal in the sense they're more of process metrics rather than outcome metrics, it is what we have today. And I'm very proud to say that Sutter does really well in these metrics. One of our goals about two, three years ago was to really provide that level of quality at all our sites. So one of the collaboration projects that we launched internally within uh, Sutter Health was a partnership with my department, which is informatics and analytics along with the quality department where we built an analytic dashboard that allows us to not only measure in real time the quality experience of a patient, but how are we progressing at all our sites for all our physicians. And while I would be misplaced to say that has made singularly made the difference, it has definitely uh, for sure contributed to our ability to pull the right levers, have the right conversations, assign the right resources where this analytic dashboard and the associated informatics workflow and the business workflow. Last year, we had a much higher result than ever before for the quality that we provide to our patients. And that's deeply satisfying because while it's been a tough project, it took good three years to make it happen, lots of money, lots of time, it is delivering the results that we hoped for And more importantly, these are meaningful uh, results. 
it's not a fancy machine learning dashboard that I can just give a talk about. Sure, sure. No, I think that's really, really neat. And you bring up machine learning and, and sort of it being fancy at the end where the rubber meets the road is, is where it matters most. And so congratulations to you and your team for creating Thank this. You. Samir, what would you say in that solution that you guys put together was the secret sauce? Why do you think it was successful? few reasons. I think number one, we had a clear idea of what we wanted to change. So the business mm-hmm. use case was crystal clear in our mind. A set of various quality and value-based measures that we wanted to improve our performance by not only being able to measure what it is in real time rather than finding out three months later what happened, but also to be able to help in the day-to-day workflow of our quality managers in impacting that workflow and working with our patients. It's by no means a completed project. It's a good start is what I would qualify it as. So that was the first point. The second thing was a really good and intense collaboration, often full of friction, but still good and focused on the right objective between my teams and the quality and operational teams. And I think that's what you need. Often people describe good collaboration as where nobody fights with each other. I would say those are the worst kind of collaborations because you never find out what's wrong till it's too late. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think the healthy amount of objectivity and interpersonal challenging that was going on allowed us to arrive at a better product. It's definitely... I think going to be a prototype for us for future success. The most difficult part, which I would say somewhat surprised me, but shouldn't have surprised me in hindsight, is how difficult it was to get a standardized workflow once the analytic dashboard had been made. And if there is of the many, I hope, helpful pearls that we will be able to share today, one of them definitely has to be focused less on the technology or the completeness of the dashboard, focus a lot more on the standard work that your teams will do once that analytic insight is available. What we found, again, not to our surprise, is that different people in different parts of the company, probably under the same job code, were doing their jobs very differently. And that's what we find in almost anything we do. So probably the last one year has been less about fixing the product or refining the product. It's been more about standardizing the workflow amongst various individuals in a team that's spread across the entire geography of Sutter Health and the complexity that comes with it, and then changing the system accordingly. And I think that's part of building a IT solution, which is definitely in the realm of informatics, ethnography, is very important because till you standardize the job to be done, then only will a solution work in supporting it. Such an astute observation, and and we really thank you for sharing that, Samir. And, and yeah, you know, when you have the clinical variability, there's no machine, no algorithm that you could place on top of it to make it better. Right, and this applies to clinical variability or operational variability. Mm-hmm. I think you have hit a very a insightful, I would say, nerve there because... Many people look at the healthcare system as a single clinical workflow, a patient meeting a doctor or a patient interacting with a nurse or the billing department. What we fail to realize often while being in healthcare is that there is an entire back office and a middle office that is not dissimilar to any other business industry vertical out there like retail banking or finance, uh, marketing, uh, any of those. Mm -hmm. So that's where we have a lot of opportunities to standardize our processes reduce the waste, 
while continuously trying to deliver better healthcare. A great call out, Samir, and and super fascinating that the last year, right? You, you worked on the tool the first two years. Now the last year is all about workflow standardization. And now you guys are having some big strides in, in the results you're getting. Can you give the listeners an example of, of the results you've created by doing things a little bit differently? Sure. So, you know, for example, we are measured on have we done all the appropriate preventive care uh, for our patients. Mm -hmm. It's uh, not only a measure of the quality of care we provide, it also allows us to improve the health of our population that we serve, the consumers that we serve. And one of the places where this has helped us is that we know the gaps in clinical care very early in the year rather than finding out much later, as I talked about. So very, there's a difference between real-time and dynamic. And in this case, I will say it's a dynamic report, which based on all the available information, we're able to tell you that these are the 10 patients in our panel who are missing a diabetes check or are missing cancer prevention check. While we're still working on enabling the workflow now that we have the insight, we are now much more aware of our gaps and can go after these 10, 15 patients to get them into the health system in some shape or manner and get them the preventive care they need. And as you know, prevention is way better off taking care of a population than treating acute problems. So this has made a big difference. The other thing is we are able to document better as to the care we have provided. And that reduces redundant care. You know, if the record does not show properly or the insights doesn't show properly that I had the required blood test for diabetes, I may end up getting the same thing prescribed to me by another doctor. So that's unnecessary testing, unnecessary cost, and unnecessary pain from a blood test and unnecessary waste of my own time where I have to, you know, figure out how do I get to the lab and get this test done. One of the biggest complaints our patients have is, why don't you have all my data in one place when I come to you? So this helped us prevent a lot of those gaps in care that we've had or gaps in communication that we had. No doubt some serious results here, Samir. As we walk through this this theme of of value-based care, how are you looking at, for example, patient-reported data to help with that? So it's a great topic to talk a little bit about. Patient-reported data is a broad category. It needs to be differentiated in outcomes data reported by a patient. For example, you came to my clinic and I did a knee procedure on you. Mm -hmm. So you send in information at one week, at one month, and six months. How good is your walking? How good is the swelling? Or hopefully gone by one month. And how is your pain, which was the first reason you first came to me? So those are patient-reported outcomes, which is what we should be really focusing on versus patient-generated data, which has a life of its own now with the Fitbits, Apple Watch, and every other device out there that is able to measure you and send the information. What I'm not saying is that it's not important. What I am saying is that it has caused an unfortunate amount of hype where the mere availability of raw data is being seen as a breakthrough, and I Hmm. would humbly beg to differ. A physician right now, a nurse right now, is already overburdened by large amount of raw data. Yes. And what they need to be given are, again, not even dashboards. As a physician, what I would like to see is that if I am your specialist who's helping you take care of diabetes, instead of knowing all the raw data you collect on your glucometer, I want to know how many times was your insulin not enough, how many times was it too much, and how are you generally doing on your diet, and then 
even moving to the next step, what basic adjustments can be done to your insulin and diet without me getting involved? And when I get involved, it should be for cases where we really need to have a deep discussion. The goal of any of these analytic data and informatics platforms should be only one at the end of the day, to allow a patient and a physician to spend more time with each other in a meaningful way so that a better healthcare outcomes can be achieved. If all these tools, all these fancy technologies lead to distraction like they normally do, or they lead to more data overload causing cognitive dissonance, we are only making the problem worse. So I like solutions that reduce the data aggregation wow factor into, I aggregated all the patient's data, they told me how they were, so both patient generated and patient reported, and based on that, we took six steps to take care of your patient that were pre-decided in a protocol uh, with you, your nurse, and your hospital, and your clinic, and here is how he or she is doing, or you know what, we did the pre-decided six steps and it's still not making a difference, we would like to bring in the patient to see you. That's how I would like to see patient-generated and patient-reported data being used. I think we got so excited that the fact that I could even get access to that data, we forgot why we were doing it in the first place. That's such a great distinction to make, Samir, and and I thank you for that because, yeah, you know, it's, it is happening and uh, you look at companies gathering this data and, you know, the excitement could sometimes uh, cloud judgment and the metrics that we're after, the outcomes that we're after. How do you maintain clarity amidst this excitement? What advice would you give to health leaders in the trenches? It's very hard. So I would be completely lying if I said I don't get drawn into it or I don't find it exciting because we're all trying to make a difference here. It is hard, but I think it is the most necessary task of a health IT leader today is to not let the shiny technology in front of us obscure the importance of the patient and the physician that we are trying to serve here. I make sure to add the physician because over the last few years, while we have had a very healthy, much needed focus on patient engagement, a lot of it has come at the cost of clinician engagement of physicians and nurses and advanced nurse practitioners and physician assistants, which has led to a significant amount of dissonance, job dissatisfaction, and burnout that we hear a lot about. So it's really important that when you are thinking of a solution, you really put the patient and the physician and the clinical workforce as your primary client and then the clinical outcome as your uh, use case focus. So that's number one. I think that helps us uh, really keep our focus. The number two is, is this solution going to improve an outcome and at the same time reduce the cost of the care delivery or maintain the cost? I think for too long, if something showed even a mere chance of improving a clinical outcome, but was extremely expensive uh, from a total cost of ownership model, we were not worried about it. You know, we, we would say the ROI would take care of it. I think we need to stop doing that. Healthcare needs to be run like a true P&L business, which will allow us to have a robust focus on how we think of these solutions. We have to really hold ourselves accountable to go back and check on how well did we do on various metrics of improving clinical care, reducing the cost of care, and improving the access for our patients and improving the job satisfaction for our physicians. Those are metrics that we need to hold ourselves accountable to. Some great advice there, Samir. Friends, if you're listening, you probably pulled over to take some notes. <laughs> if you didn't, the nice thing about podcasts is that you could always rewind and go back because Samir definitely offered a lot of value there. 
I encourage you to go back, listen to this again, and start thinking about how you could approach this subject of new technologies and keep that outcome at the center of all your decisions. Samir, I feel like oftentimes we learn more from our setbacks than our successes. Can you share with the listeners a setback and what you learned from it? Oh boy, so many to choose from. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I think you're absolutely right. I only learn when I make a mistake because when something goes well, you assume it's because of what you did, but you have no data to prove that. It's only when you fail do you potentially have the opportunity to do a root cause analysis and you learn. I think, you know, rather than focusing on the one time I failed, because there have been so many, honestly, mm-hmm. I think it's one area that I know I have failed in the past for sure is not thinking enough about change management. You know, it's very easy for me to say I picked the wrong technology, I picked the wrong stack, and that's why something failed. I would, again, encourage our users and colleagues to think differently. It's often in the change management that we fail. And what I mean by that is if you look at the design theory, or the design methodology, the first step in that is have empathy for the user. And we can stop right there, is that have you really understood the change you will make to the user's workflow and how it will impact the job to be done as they think their job is? And these are words taken from Professor Clayton Christensen, who wrote the book Innovator's Dilemma as an example of the many good books he has written. It's really important. We do not take a pause to understand How will this change the job that's being done by a particular group of people where this technology or this new process or this new clinic will be implemented? And then do they have enough training, backup support, and continued support to go make a difference? In the informatics world, there is a common joke that if you go up to the senior management person and say, hey, I need $20 million because our servers are end of life and systems will come down, you will get you know, maybe $30 million and say, make sure it doesn't happen again. But if you go back and say, hey, you know, I want $5 million to retrain all my nurses and physicians and standardize workflow, you will get blank stares. Mm-hmm. So somehow from a very tangible request, you went into the intangible in the minds of many people. And I think that's a mistake that I have been guilty of making is to not ask for enough resources in that space, not spending enough time thinking through the what ifs in those in that arena. So I think human behavior and human change management are probably the places where I always feel, have I done enough? So in many ways, I feel like psychology of change is the most powerful technology we have access to and we don't use. Samir, so, you, you bring up some really great points. And again, you know, hitting on this theme of, of ensuring that we've got the right clinical flows. We've got the appropriate level of attention on on ensuring that these workflows are in a good place. I love that that you're focused on this. Despite the fact that you're very tech-centered, you still continue to bring us back to what matters, which is the quality of these providers as well as the quality of the patient. And in your experience, what would you say one of the proudest moments you've experienced? All right, in this case, so few. So which one should I talk about? Um, (laughs) I think the first distinction I would make is that, you know, I definitely see myself as a medical executive or a healthcare executive. I Mm -hmm. don't see myself as a IT executive. I am a clinician first and uh, last, and I just happen to use health IT as most outwardly visible toolkit to make a difference. 
I think the most proudest moment probably came from teacher mindset is where I've had uh, two or three really misguided people say they want to go down the career path I have. So I try very hard to convince them of otherwise, but I think that was a big compliment to be able to see the kind of results. So that's from my teacher mindset. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was, you know, way back at University of Chicago where I was their chief medical information officer five, six years ago, and we had we were still finishing up our epic implementation. And I had a couple of you know nurses come up to me and say that some of the recent changes in workflow and technical fixes that we had made allowed them to deliver safer care in the OBGYN department. And you know, for many reasons that really resonated. I've had many other such experiences, but if you think about it, the little babies are probably the most vulnerable uh, population. There is plenty of chances to make mistake, and that was around the time that my daughter was also born. So maybe the hormonal overload for me at that time was also <laughs> kicking in. But I think that was one of my proudest moments and reinforced for me that the personal sacrifice I feel I am making every day by not practicing actively does amount to something of material difference to the patients and physicians I serve. That's wonderful. No, no, no doubt Comer Children's definitely one of the best in, in the world right. and pretty awesome that you did that work over there, Samir, you know, in my backyard, I'm here in Chicago, um, we definitely recognize the University of Chicago as definitely one of the best in the world. Absolutely. So kudos to you and your team, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. It was a team effort for sure. But like I said, it validated my career choices. That's wonderful. Tell us about an exciting project or focus that you're working on today. It hasn't kicked off, but I'm really excited to talk about it. So building on the theme of the biggest technology we have access to is the psychology of the human mind and change management. If you extend that it, or formalize that, it gets into the field of behavioral economics or behavioral psychology. And it's employed by marketing, sales, pharmaceuticals for decades. In fact, it's a well-known secret that the biggest recruiter of new psychology grads are sales, marketing, and pharmaceutical industries. And it makes complete sense. So for me, I think in healthcare, we are so focused on new technologies, new diagnostic methods, more doctors, more hospitals, more nurses, that we have completely missed out on the opportunity to change human behavior. In this case, the human is either your employee, your collaborator as a physician or a nurse, and then finally your consumer, which is your patient, to influence their behavior. So this is also known as the nudge theory, and there are many books written about it where they talk about how you phrase a certain question or how you present a certain situation. People react differently. A very good personal example that I like to share is that when I was applying for my license in Chicago, and in fact, at that time, my clinical practice was focused on transplant medicine, just the inpatient medicine, not the surgery. And I go to fill in my, get my driver license after having moved from a different state. And one of the questions is, do you want to donate your organs when you die? It was something literally as brutal as that. <laughs> and I have to admit, at that moment, I stopped being a transplant physician who wow. used to fret about the availability of organs. And I became a mere mortal who were like, uh, no. And they thought, well, you know, I'll change it later. Right now, I don't feel like clicking yes. You know, I became this illogical, irrational human being where I thought the mere checking of a checkbox on a DMV form would entice mortality on myself. 
And I have never really gotten over uh, what I consider poor choice by me almost 10 years ago of answering that question. Now, many other states, and I don't know if Illinois has changed this, do it differently. Instead of making it an opt-in where you have to rationalize your eventual mortality, they talk about opt-out where instead of saying, you know, do you want to when you die, you say, hey, when you're no longer in the world, do you want to not help your fellow human beings? So then it, number one, makes it an Uh, Mm -hmm. opt-out. The decision has sort of been made for you. And then number two, it appeals to your altruistic side. And you're like, oh, of course I want to help. I'm a nice person. I help my neighbor with their garbage when they can't. So yeah, I'm a nice person. Of course I want to continue helping people. So the response from the same person becomes very different. It has been applied, for example, by the United Kingdom Tax Department, where instead of saying, you have to pay your taxes on time, otherwise you'll have this penalty or that penalty, and people just throw that mailer in the dustbin. Instead, they leverage one of these professors who was expert in the nudge theory, and he guided them to send a simple postcard that said, did you know that by X date, 72% of your neighbors have already filled in their taxes? And you're like, what? I'm the outlier. I'm the bad person yeah. in this neighborhood. And you you know, start behaving differently. So just a very simple 20 cents postcard made a difference of about 10% and multi-million dollar revenue opportunity for the tax department. So in healthcare, we need to bring a lot more of that and there isn't enough of that. I see early start for that in Duke at Penn. We're working uh, to figure that out at uh, Sutter ourselves. And the amount of time that we spend on the computer delivering healthcare, the amount of time our patients spend on the computer, not only receiving their healthcare, but in this digital world, offers tremendous opportunity for us to take advantage and do some real good here. So that's the area that I'm really excited about. I'm trying to figure out what would be my first proof of concepts and how to get them going. Hopefully at a future date, I can talk about that as one of our good learnings. That is super exciting. And it's definitely full circle, just getting back to that psychology, Samir. And uh, you know what? Anything you get involved with, I'm interested in following. So please, um, we'll have to get you back on in maybe a year or so when you get it off the ground to, to hear about how things are going. Thank you. I would love that. Awesome. Samir, we're getting close to the end here. So this part of the podcast, a quick lightning round, four questions. We're going to build a medical mm-hmm. leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine, the 101 of Dr. Samir Badlani. And so I've got a syllabus, four questions. I'll ask you those mm-hmm. and then we'll finalize it with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Okay, absolutely. Awesome. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Stop wasting money. I love that. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? To assume you have all the answers or what worked the last time will work this time too. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? I think a singular focus on delivering value for your consumers and in a healthcare organization, that's just not your patients. It's also your prayers and it's also your provider partners. So all three. What's one area of focus that should drive everything in the organization? Delivering better quality care to our patients and running it like a true business. Well said. And finally, Sorry, Samir, two areas of focus. Yeah, no, that's perfect. What book would you recommend for the listeners as part of the syllabus? Sure. So, you know, I'm a big fan of 
the classic literature. So pick any book from Shakespeare. I think you will find a lot of nice. life lessons. And in healthcare, I think a comedy of errors is probably the one to start with. Wonderful. What a great recommendation, Samir. Thank you for that. Listeners, don't worry about writing any of that down. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash Badlani, as in Dr. Samir Badlani. And you're going to find all the show notes, a transcript of what we've discussed, as well as links for the organization uh, that Samir is with and all the things that we discussed, as well as a link to the book. Samir, this has been so much fun. Really appreciate the time you've spent with us. If you can, just leave us with a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with or follow you. Sure. Well, Saul, first of all, thank you for this opportunity. It was really interesting for me to go through the process and share some of my thoughts. I feel very lucky and hopefully other people find it entertaining and interesting. I think LinkedIn is the best place to get hold of me. It's the easiest social channel. I'm not on Facebook and occasionally show up on Twitter to talk about coffee. So uh, LinkedIn (laughs) is probably the best place. I think one closing thought I would have is uh, have a very clear idea of what is the outcome you are trying to achieve in your day-to-day work. Too often we spend time delivering projects and not outcomes. And I think that's a fundamental change that needs to come in how we deliver healthcare. A great message, Samir. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And again, be sure to rewind and listen again because Samir definitely offered some great takeaways that you can apply at your organization. So Samir, again, just want to say big thank you for spending time with us and looking forward to having you back. Thank you so much, Saul. Have a good day. Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast. If you want the show notes, inspiration, transcripts, and everything that we talked about on this episode, just go to outcomesrocket.health. And again, don't forget to check out the amazing Healthcare Thinkathon, where you can get together to form the blueprint for the future of healthcare. You can find more information on that and how to get involved in our theme, which is implementation is innovation. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash conference. That's outcomesrocket.health slash conference. Be one of the 200 that will participate. Looking forward to seeing you there.